Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 92. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 8 through 11 and follow with a consideration of divine intervention, abstention, and the mezuzah. Chapter 8 begins with a continuation of prophecy from the previous episode, Aram and Ephraim versus Judah, and the birth of a boy who portends good things for the kingdom. Chapter 7 told of Emmanuel's birth as a sign that Jerusalem will be saved, but chapter 8 tells of another boy, also with a symbolic name that spells bad news for Ephraim and Aram, and hints at the salvation of Jerusalem. Maher Shalal Chashbaz, or as the JPS renders it, Pillage Hastens Looting Speeds, Man, that would look awesome on the back of a hockey jersey. God tells Yeshayahu to write that name on a tablet and have it notarized by two reliable witnesses, the priests Uriah and Zechariah. And then Yeshayahu impregnates his wife, the prophetess, and she has a baby boy, which will be named, that's right, Come here, little pillage hastens looting speeds. Let me tickle your little tummy. Come over here. <laughs> And before Maher Shalal Khashbaz learns to call his parents mom and dad... You say mama? The cities of Samaria and Damascus will fall. This stretch of time is significantly shorter than the time chapter 7 specified about Emmanuel learning right from wrong and the enemies of Judah collapsing. Anyway, the second portion of the prophecy, verses 5 through 8 has some feelings about the people's attitude. They're cowering before the threats of the king of Israel. For this, God will allow the Assyrians to invade and menace the people. From about verse 9, the rest of the chapter is a bit of a hodgepodge of statements from the prophet, which I guess the editors kind of threw together here because they deal with listening to God as opposed to getting sucked into the petty schemes of local kings or ghosts or foreign gods. The only thing that will come of that is, quote, distress and darkness with no daybreak, straightness and gloom with no dawn. But faith in God will bring victory. And with the ultimate victory, there will be another birth, another son where, quote, authority has settled on his shoulders and he has been named. Are you ready? Pele Yoetz El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. His mates around the pub will call him. Hey, what's happening, Norm? Oh, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, Sammy, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. <laughs> and he'll rule David's kingdom in peace. The rest of the chapter takes up the final days of the kingdom of Israel that, because of their sins, will end badly. God's anger still burns against Israel, a people whose moral decline and social collapse not only spelled their doom, but if the folks in Judah are paying close attention, it might serve as a warning to them to shape up as well. With chapter 10, we have for the first time a prophet who is forced to contend with a truly powerful force, an empire that marches across the Middle East and imposes its will on subject peoples from Babylon to Egypt, the Assyrians. It seems that they can do whatever the hell they want. What says God of this? Does God want the Assyrians to win, to plunder, to destroy? Does God plan their setbacks? Ishayahu ultimately sets out a theology of geopolitics, a monotheistic theology that does not see Assyria's victory as the victory of their gods over ours. No, no, no. Empires rise and fall at God's will. Assyria is a tool in the hand of God to punish those who deserve a good slap. 
which is apparently many folks who, quote, write out evil writs and compose iniquitous documents to subvert the cause of the poor, to rob of their rights the needy of my people. Which raises an interesting theological question. If Assyria is only doing what God wants it to do, can it be blamed for its cruelty? For this, Yeshayahu has no answer. Yeshayahu, however, also adds that Assyria will get theirs later, and that even a tool in the hand of God can rouse God's wrath because of their arrogance and pride, their hubris, their decision to stray from their mandate, or because they're just excessively cruel, and their empire will fall on the mountains of the land of Israel, meaning that their demise will not be just one of those things that happen to empires, you know, overextension, too much blood spilled for too little treasure, internal squabbling, decadence. No, no, no. Assyria will not fall for the usual reasons. Their fall will prove that God and only God raises up and takes down. Quote, Does an axe boast over him who hews with it, or a saw magnify itself above him who wields it? Uh, no. So, even if Assyria marches on Jerusalem, storming and stomping across the hills of Judea, Assyria will get theirs eventually. In chapter 11, Yeshayahu really proves himself to be a tremendous fanboy of the house of David. Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, Hoshea, Yoel, Amos, Ovadia, Micha, Tzfania, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all present visions of the end of days as well, but none tie them so much so close to the house of David as does Yeshayahu. In fact, all the other prophets speak in generalities. Well, Yirmiyahu mentions the house of David once, and well, okay, Yechezkel does once too, and perhaps Zechariah, Micha, and Amos kind of hint at the house of David, but for Yeshayahu, there can be no peace in the future without the house of David being involved. Quote, but a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Yishai, a twig shall sprout from his stock, and the Spirit of the Lord shall alight upon him. This descendant of the house of David will rule benevolently, gather the dispersed, be victorious over his neighbors, the wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie with the goat, the cow and the bear will graze together. There will be peace, and it will be amazing. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. The concept of a history intervening God being exclusively and explicitly on my side might have started in Isaiah with the name of the magical child in chapter 7. Remember him, Immanuel, which literally means God is with us, which is probably why there are about two dozen synagogues named Temple Emmanuel, which is a bit of a cheek if you ask me. I mean, can you imagine what happens at the URJ Biennial when the rabbi and cantor of one Temple Emmanuel bumps into the rabbi and cantor of another Temple Emmanuel? Hey you, let's fight! Them's fighting words. <laughs> See what I mean? But it wasn't like a battle cry in ancient Israel. Yeshayahu did not tell Ahaz to tell the boys to yell Emmanuel at the top of their lungs when they charged at the enemy. But apparently, during the late Roman Empire, Nobiscum Deus was a battle cry. That's gods with us, for all y'all who failed Latin in high school. The Greeks had a variation, Meth Imon Otheos, and in Church Slavonic, Snami Bog. So this kind of thing was very popular in the Roman Empire, West and especially East, and it's a popular hymn in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Let's have a listen. Nami bo krasum yeh te yazit 
Beautiful, no? What they're singing is, quote, God is with us. Understand this, O nations, and submit yourselves, for God is with us. Hear this even to the farthest bounds of the earth, for God is with us. Submit yourselves, O mighty ones, for God is with us. If you rise again in your might, you will be overthrown, for God is with us. You see where this is going? Straight to Swedish power metal. That was Sabaton, and they were singing about the glorious battle of Breitenfeld in 1631. Apparently, they sing a lot about war and historic battles, including a track entitled Counter-Strike about the Six-Day War off their first album Primo Victoria, or Back in Control, off Atero Dominus, which is about the Falklands War. These guys really like to sing about war. The slogan uh, Gott mit uns was popularized in modern times by German soldiers who inscribed Gott mit uns on their helmets in the First World War and used it as a rallying cry. The slogan also appeared on the belt buckles of the Wehrmacht during World War II. Now, I guess the slogan works if you're winning, because, you know, it proves that God is with us. But what happens when we lose? What happens when Gott ist nicht mit uns, or... Lo Emanuel. Yeshayahu never addresses this idea because for him, God is always with us. God might be angry because we do terrible things and God might send someone to oppress us, but that's part of the plan. This concept is encapsulated by the principle in Jewish belief called Hashgacha, or as it is translated, providence, whereby God not only knows what's going on earth, but he's engaged in supervising. There are many physical manifestations of this principle in the daily life of observant Jews, and one of the more prominent and public examples is the mezuzah. Mezuzah literally means doorpost. Each doorway has two. Otherwise, it would be, I guess, a, a hole or a crack or an opening, I guess. Anyway, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, Jews are commanded to inscribe the words of the Shema, on the doorpost of one's house. So a small scroll is prepared with the required verses from the Torah, and it's housed in a small box, which is affixed to the right doorpost. That's house right, not stage right. So installing a mezuzah goes way, way back, but kissing a mezuzah is a rather late innovation to Jewish tradition, probably from the 16th century. The Israeli sketch comedy show Hayehudim Ba'im, or The Jews Are Coming, 
address this very important question of the provenance of mezuzah kissing. And they set the sketch in the Middle Ages, and it begins with individuals entering a synagogue. As they enter, each one kisses their hand and touches the mezuzah and is greeted with a hearty shalom aleichem, except for this one guy who just comes in, and before he can sit, he's confronted by the minion. He asks, what's happened? What's going on? What are you looking at? And one guy says, the mezuzah. And he says, it looks okay. What's up with it? You didn't kiss it, they tell him. Kiss a mezuzah? Why would I do that, he chuckles. Since when are we kissing the mezuzah? Since last week, someone shouts. Where is it written? Our friend asks. It's not written, says the rabbi. It's like a tradition. What does that mean, like a tradition? We've started inventing stuff now because we don't have enough rules? It's a ruling by our rebbe, someone else shouts. Sorry, rebbe, our guy says. I didn't know. I wasn't here last week. What do I have to do? So just explain and quick schmick, I'll do it. Come on. So someone tells him to kiss the mezuzah, which he proceeds to do. He like sidles up to it, to the doorpost. He leans in and he plants this big wet one right onto the mezuzah. Not like that, they shout at him with, with your hand. Our friend admits, okay, it's a little odd, but okay, I'm with you. And he uses his hand to kind of hug the doorpost and kiss the mezuzah again. No, 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 no. Only with the hand, they yell at him. Only with the hand, he says. Okay, okay. So he puts his fingers together like a, like a duck beak, and he touches the mezuzah, and he makes a big kissing sound. The folks are getting frustrated with him. Move, one guy shouts and kind of shoves him over. He reaches over, touches the mezuzah, then touches his lips and makes a kissing sound. Ah, that's it? So what's the big production? So explain, that's how you do it. What's the big deal? Why are you all yelling at me? So he does it as it's prescribed, and he's like, great, fine. Did that. Can we get on with things now? And as he steps into the synagogue, he notices that someone has dropped their kippah on the floor. Whose is this? Yossi says, me, me, it's mine. So someone says, ah, you'd better kiss it. Kiss this too? Yes, someone yells. It's also from last week. Kiss it already. So he kisses it like three times, then hands it over. And as each person takes the kippah, they plant a kiss on it too, before it finally makes its way back to Yossi. So Yossi gets his kippah back and he says, so yeah, where were you last week? And our guy's like, I come all the time. And the one time I don't come, why are you making such a big deal of that? Okay, okay, okay. So I woke up and I have this blister next to my mouth and it was like full of pus and it was gross and disgusting. So I went to the doctor and he told me it was herpes. At which point everyone's kind of touching their lips in shock and horror. I'll put the YouTube link up for this sketch at thenextjew.com if you're interested in seeing it for yourself. Be warned, it's in Hebrew. But jokes aside, uh, observant folks take the mezuzah kissing and upkeep very seriously. A popular story about mezuzah maintenance appears in Rabbi Joseph Telushkin's Jewish Literacy, but I'm sure you've heard variations of it from friends and family. This story comes from Israel. Following the massacre of Jewish children at the hands of Palestinian terrorists in Ma'alot on May 15, 1974, a rabbi examined the mezuzot in their school and found that 19 or 21 or 23 of the mezuzot were psulot, meaning unkosher, one for each murdered child. The differing accounts cite different casualty counts, but apparently the leader of the Chabad movement, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, sort of confirmed this connection in a subsequent campaign for Jews to check their mezuzah. Quote, a kosher mezuzah on your doorposts not only makes your house an abode of godliness, but is also your security measure even after you have left home for the day. And since all Jews are one large body, it increases the security of the entire Jewish nation. Due to the fact 
that most of the mezuzot in the homes of hostages upon examination were found to be defective, improperly placed, or not on every doorpost, all Jews should check their mezuzot immediately. So do you see what happened? So there was this actual event, and then this kind of apocryphal tale that was then kind of taken on faith and then disseminated even more widely. And the thing is that this pamphlet, this where the quote came from, was produced in 1976 in Morristown, New Jersey, by the student branch of the Chabad movement. It's entitled Jews and Miracles. And the quote is referring to another story where the Jewish hostages taken to Entebbe, Uganda, by other Palestinian terrorists in July of 1976, the mezuzot in their homes, as the pamphlet states, were checked, and many of them were found to be psulot as well. Subsequent glosses by modern Orthodox scholars and thinkers and rabbis have looked askance at this phenomenon, but they have an interesting take. They argue that correlation is not causation. Mezuzah is important, kissing it too, but probably not as much. Making sure the mezuzah is kosher is important, and it should be checked regularly, but not necessarily when crisis or tragedy strike. Although crisis and tragedy should alert the individual that everything should be checked, your personal conduct, etc., etc., including the mezuzah. See what you did there. Yeshayahu was contending with a much more acute problem. There was no question about correlation here. Israel sinned and they ended up in exile, and Judah sinned and the Assyrians came to give them a smack. And it would be well deserved because Judean society was corrupt and oppressive and mean. You can't stop what's coming. They ain't all waiting on you. But Yeshayahu was trying to shoehorn the crime and punishment dynamic, you know, the omniscient God watching and directing affairs into a much larger context. As I said before, the Assyrians seem to do whatever the hell they want. So it seems God wants the Assyrians to win, to plunder and destroy, because it's part of God's plan. And we hear variations of this contention throughout Jewish history, where terrible things befall the Jews, and that all the awfulness is part of the plan, and we should accept it and go along with it. We heard this sentiment articulated during the revolts against Rome in the 1st and 2nd centuries CE. It manifests itself in the three oaths mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Ketubot 111a, whereby the Jews swear to God that they would not try to forcefully reclaim the land of Israel, nor rebel against their Gentile overlords, and the Gentiles pledge not to oppress the Jews too much. It's all part of the plan. It also manifests itself in the coinage holocaust, which means animal sacrifice. When Elie Wiesel began to use that word in connection with the destruction of Europe's Jews at the hands of the Nazis, he sought to make a connection between the binding of Isaac and the annihilation. We Jews were sacrificed, some survived while others did not, which raises all kinds of terrible questions like, does God demand the sacrifice? Is the one who sacrifices fulfilling God's will? And are we nothing but objects in this interaction? I'd rather not think about that because it makes my head hurt and my heart hurt just as much. But there is consolation in knowing that the Assyrians get theirs in the end. Or is there? God brings them down too because of their hubris and their cruelty. And the Babylonians, they fall hard because of their arrogance. We outlasted them too. But the Romans, they also really gave it to us. 
and they lasted for like a really long time before, well, it's not clear that God really gave it to them. There was that split and, and the empire, and, and it's complicated. And what about Ferdinand and Isabella, the, the Reyes Catolicos? They continued to rule Spain long after they expelled the Jews. They're even venerated figures in Spanish history. They're the funders of Christopher Columbus's expedition, the sponsors of the... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Our chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Fear and surprise are two weapons. Our fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency are three weapons. Our fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope are four. No. <laughs> Amongst our weapons. Amongst our weaponry are such elements as fear. I'll come in again. And so, by the way, is the murdering Cossack Bogdan Khmelnytsky in the Ukraine. He's on their five Haverna note a national hero. But the Nazis, they got bombed out of existence. So yeah, good job, allies. So perhaps correlation is causation, or what seems like correlation is actually causation after all. But only if you wait around, like, a really long time. And Yeshayahu and his vision of the end of days is definitely playing the long game. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out Tanakhcast. Or like Tanakhcast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find Tanakhcast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 93, when we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapters 12 through 15.